We have not had a budget, and there's no idea when we're going to have a budget. And that's important because, yes, we're doing all this emergency spending, but the government also, as I mentioned, normally spends about $350 billion a year. What's happening to those programs? We had just spoken to Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken, raising some points about that fiscal update that we got yesterday from the federal government. To break that down further and talk more about it, we're joined now by Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer. Thank you very much for being back with us. Thank you very much for having me back. Now, what were your concerns that you heard yesterday? I mean, that's a huge deficit, but what what do you think people need to think about here? Well, they need to think about where all the money is coming from to pay for all the spending. Uh, Right now, the Bank of Canada is printing money. They're creating it out of thin air, and they're buying government debt. And uh, we're very concerned about the lack of a plan to restart the the, the economy. When we look around at our G7 partners, they all have recovery plans that are clearly laid out to to to, to get growth and, and job creation back. And all of that was missing. So not only do we have a massive deficit, but we didn't even get the growth or the or check the jobs that uh, the liberals claimed because we have the worst job performance in the G7 and we have the highest unemployment rate. So a lot of spending, big flaws and big gaps in the liberal programs and no sense of returning to any kind of fiscal sanity in the near future. What is the best way to approach that then? What do you think that recovery plan should look like? Well, we have to recognize the fact that Canada will be fighting with every single other country in the world to attract investment. Uh, Every other country is going to come out of this pandemic trying to to attract that investment to to kickstart their own economies. And we have to have some kind of a competitive edge. And right now, we're not seeing any of that. Uh, What conservatives are calling for is to unleash the power of the private sector to recognize that it's hardworking Canadians and small business that will create those jobs and some kind of a support plan. So conservatives have proposed ideas such as rebating the GST, allowing small businesses who have collected over the past couple of quarters to be able to keep it so they can invest in their own companies, hire back staff and open the doors again. We didn't see any kind of a support plan in the, uh, in the update yesterday. How do we create more revenue as well? Obviously, that's going to be a challenge for the federal government. Uh, for sure. You know, there's two things that are causing this big deficit. One is the uh, unprecedented spending levels. And the other is the fact that for many, many months now, uh, there are so many businesses that couldn't operate and many people got laid off. So uh, there's a lack of uh, government revenues right now. That's where we would say that uh, the having a, a jobs and a recovery plan in the short term, of course, it'll take a while for that revenue to come back up. But if you have a plan to support the reopening, eventually the, those revenues will restart. So uh, we're going to be in deficits no matter what for the next few months as the programs designed to help people through the pandemic expire. Uh, some of that spending should time lapse, uh, but if there isn't a plan to, as I said, to get that economy going and to eliminate the deficits that the government went into the pandemic already carrying. Remember, the Liberals were racking up 27, 28, $30 billion deficits. It seems so small now, but uh, they really did put Canada in a weakened and vulnerable position, and we need to eliminate that part of the structural deficit as well over the medium term. So what is then the Conservative Party going to do then in order to hold the government to account over the next few months? Well, it's, uh, it's been a challenge for the past little bit because uh, the Liberals shut down Parliament. And uh, normally when Parliament is sitting, opposition parties have the ability to uh, propose their own alternatives, to hold the government to account. 
by sidelining Parliament, the Liberals really have uh, eliminated a lot of that parliamentary oversight, and Parliament isn't scheduled to come back till September. One of the things we're still going to focus on, though, is the gaps in the programs that the Liberals still haven't fixed. You, you heard a lot of rhetoric yesterday from Bill Morneau talking about the need for speed, and we agreed back in March, we agreed to give the government uh, unlimited, uh, unprecedented power to, to help Canadians get through this, this pandemic, and we were told that the programs would be fixed over time. None of that has happened. We, we've pointed out gaps in the wage subsidy. Uh, we've pointed out the fact that the CERB has a big barrier for people to return to work. We want to remove that barrier and bring in a back-to-work bonus to allow people to keep more of their CERB while they work. Uh, the government hasn't made any of those changes, and we're now well into July, and many Canadians are, are falling through the cracks of their programs. It is going to be challenging. Uh, Mr. Shear. thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That's Andrew Shear, leader of the Conservative Party, talking about the challenges faced not just by the government but by the opposition too in dealing with these fiscal situations in Ottawa. As we heard yesterday from Finance Minister Bill Morneau, Canada looking at a deficit of about $340-plus billion, numbers that have just been unheard of for a couple of generations now here in Canada. Not since World War II have we talked about numbers like that before. So where is the plan to get us out of that moving forward? That's a very good point the opposition has made here. Where is that? Something that I know uh, that the government is going to be asking, being having to answer those questions a lot in the months ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's check in with our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning and find out what she is up to. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I'm currently sitting here in my sweatpants, as I have been for you the too. past. Ooh, are you actually? You're Because no. you're in the studio. I'm in my jeans, but it's funny. Oh. Uh, our producer, Greg Schott, this morning just randomly was complaining to me about everybody he sees uh, in jogging pants. And he wanted to know... <laughs> do we not wear jeans anymore? And I said to him, I'm wearing jeans this morning. What do you mean? But he feels like everywhere he looks, he only sees people in jogging pants. Yeah, he's right. I wore jeans yesterday for the first time in probably three days. I'm not even joking. <laughs> it's just, and I work from home now. So it's just, you know, it's more comfortable. You get up in the morning, you put on a pair of sweatpants. By the end of the day, you're still wearing that same pair of sweatpants. I'm not proud of this fact, Simi. But I am very comfortable. Listen, at least you put on the sweatpants. Our other producer, Victor, I don't think he gets out of his pajamas. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I don't think he's wearing any pants. No, I would not go there. I think he stays <laughs> in his pajamas. But I guess it's not surprising to hear then that sales of things like jeans not doing that well. Yeah, Levi's actually reported that their sales fell 62% in the second quarter, which resulted in them having to cut 15% of their workforce around the world. So that equals about 700 jobs. Again, as you said, I don't think this is particularly surprising because so many businesses struggled. Although, you know, with Levi's, we can kind of say, oh, geez, you know, maybe people are just wearing sweatpants. They're not buying jeans these days. But uh, Chip Berg, in an interview, he's the CEO of Levi Strauss. He said the majority of their stores were closed during the pandemic. About 60% of our stores and our wholesale partner doors were closed during that period of time. And when doors are closed, you're not generating a lot of revenue. I think the positive surprise was the strength of our e-commerce business. Well, I hope so, because I was thinking too that, you know, buying things online, like I'm, believe me, I love to online shop, but I wouldn't be as comfortable buying jeans online because I feel like that's something you really need to try on before you buy. 
That is exactly what I was thinking when I heard him say that. When he said, at least our online sales were doing well. You go, who's really? buying jeans online? That's one thing for sure. You have to be in the store because, you know, by the time you get them on, either they make your butt look weird or they don't fit comfortably or they're too tight around the ankles. I don't. I don't comprehend how you could buy jeans online. I don't know either. And let's face it, with everything going on, we're not at our slimmest and best right now. <laughs> May have changed a yeah. size or two. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that people are resorting to sweatpants, jogging pants, workout gear. I'm sure that if you checked with places like Lululemon and, you know, athletic wear, they're doing gangbusters. Yeah, it's funny because I was actually reading an article about how Harry Rosen is doing through the pandemic. And they're saying, like many others, look, our sales are down because people aren't buying business suits to go to work in anymore. If you're sitting at home and you're doing a meeting on Zoom, you know, you could wear the same suit jacket for two weeks in a row and people aren't going to really notice the difference, especially if your internet connection's that good. They can't really see it too well anyways. <laughs> and you could be wearing sweatpants on the bottom, a suit jacket on the top. So it'll be interesting to see how business fashion rebounds from this because I'm sure, as you said, athletic companies are probably doing okay, at least in regard to their online sales. I think everybody's brick and mortar really suffered. Yeah. And for example, with Levi Strauss, I mean, their fiscal second quarter, which took that big hit was March, April, May. So you're going to take the brunt of the pandemic in your figures when that's your second fiscal quarter. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot of businesses, a lot of fashion companies going through the same thing. But it'll be interesting, I think, to see Casual wear is one thing, even jeans one thing, but how business wear recovers from all of this. If it will, it's going to seem very uncomfortable to people, right? To get back into those uh, suits and you know business clothes and go back to work. Yeah, and I think that there's been uh, a big movement over time anyways, away from wearing a full suit and tie when, when you go to the office. At least here on the West Coast, I think it's a bit more typical, perhaps back east. Right. Even when I lived in Calgary, it was very rare. I shouldn't say it was it was very rare, but it wasn't as common that you would see uh, a, someone dressed up to work and wearing a full tie. Of course, they wear suit jackets and and they looked really really nice in suit jackets and dress shirts. But to wear the full tie even was something that people were moving away from. And then on Fridays, of course, everybody would wear a dress shirt and jeans on the bottom. Uh, it was Calgary, so maybe cowboy Friday. boots too. Exactly. And then here on the West Coast, I think we take that to even more of an extreme. I mean, the new business trend could be wearing you know Lululemons on the bottom and a dress shirt on top. <laughs> <laughs> on casual Friday. So true, so true. So yes, not surprising uh, that people are going for the more comfortable clothes uh, during this pandemic situation. I don't know how you get people back out of those after, but if you want to talk to us about your fashion habits, by all means, when was the last time you put on a pair of jeans or you know, dress pants for that matter. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. Also, Nikki, did you check out the update yesterday from Dr. Henry and from Health Minister Adrian Dix? I love that we're we're doing a transition here from wearing clothes to wearing no clothes. Now yes. that we're talking about strip clubs again. <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> yes, they've uh, the health officials expanded a possible COVID-19 exposure notice for the number five orange, which we were just talking about yesterday morning. So initially they said that they had an employee who tested positive and was working on Canada Day on July 1st. Right. And now they said a second person has since tested positive and they were working at the club 
July 1st, July 3rd, July 4th, and July 7th. So it really expands the amount of time that people may have come into contact with either of these two employees. I'm just going to say here, I think we have a problem. I think we like, you know, Brandy's and now number five orange. And I was, you know, watching in the news where it turns out that um, strip clubs are technically in this kind of gray area. They were not specifically covered under the reopening plans, nightclubs aren't supposed to operate until phase four, but they were allowed to if they repurposed themselves as pubs and followed appropriate regulations. But can we not argue that this doesn't sound like that is happening here? And did you see the statement from Brandy's where they said, oh no, they've done a deep clean and they're not going to allow any more American customers in. And I thought, well, where where the (laughs) hell were your American customers coming from to begin with? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a little bit of a, a ridiculous statement. I mean, you can't say that every case of COVID-19 that you had in your establishment was traced back to this, you know, the danger of the American customer yeah. who came in. Don't get me wrong. You know, that's a whole other conversation to be had uh, about, you know, Americans coming up here. But where and so were, forth, yeah, exactly. But, that was my question is, you've got Americans coming in there. Where were they coming from? Why was that going on? Yeah, I, I think here that they need to really address their own practices before, yes. you know, sort of throwing out that dog whistle a little bit. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they're able to successfully reopen after this and if other strip clubs are able to successfully reopen because of their business model. And in regards to, you know, nightclubs reopening, we saw warnings of possible COVID-19 exposure at Hotel Belmont, which is a bar and a nightclub in downtown Vancouver. So yeah. again, are these establishments opening under the rules of being a pub or a dining establishment, but then skirting the rules and going exactly. back to their pre-pandemic practices, only causing problems for consumers and for health concerns. I think we need to have a little bit of a crackdown on that because the numbers are kind of creeping up a little bit. But Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Not only do we have a massive deficit but we didn't even get the growth or the or protect the jobs that uh, the robust claimed because we have the worst job performance in the G7 and we have the highest unemployment rate. That's Conservative leader Andrew Scheer talking with us this morning about the fiscal update we had from the federal government yesterday. And it was a stark one, a deficit that we're looking at right now at about $343 billion, the likes of which we have not seen since World War II. So we wanted to talk about what we could glean from yesterday's announcement, because still so many questions, right? No idea of how we're going to deal with this deficit, the recovery plan, all of those issues. So joining us to talk more about that now is Professor Jennifer Robson, who teaches public policy at Carleton University. Dr. Robson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what what did you hear yesterday? Did you hear about how we're going to deal with this? Well, I heard about what the government estimates is going to be the end of year cost for all of the emergency spending they've been doing. I heard um, them talk about a couple of different scenarios that they see in terms of kind of the the immediate future, right? Uh, yeah. How whether whether the recovery will be kind of you know um, careful and slow, um, or uh, whether in fact the recovery will have to be halted, right? So I don't think. Um, I don't think any of us are looking at a scenario where it's kind of a really sharp V-shaped recovery where 
the you know the virus is suddenly gone and we can just uh, immediately end all of the emergency measures and special um, you know special programs. So that's kind of the picture that I heard. Um, I know people were probably hoping for a clear, I don't know, seven-point or 12-step point uh, plan for uh, this is exactly how we're going to navigate back to full recovery of the economy. I, I I feel like there's still so much uncertainty in terms of the public health side here. And, like, if we don't deal with that, then the recovery stuff is all for naught, right? Yeah, that's, I think, the concern that a lot of people have, too. And and you're thinking, well, how are we going to service the debt? We heard about that. But what about yeah. raising taxes? What about revenue? What about all those other issues? Yeah, and I, I totally know people want to get to that conversation right away. Like, we're all kind of eager to get back to normal, right? Um, 100%. I will say, like, look, the deficit number that was released yesterday is staggering. It, it is, you know, three point, sorry, $343 billion. That is that's big. It's actually, it's hard to imagine a number that size. Um, I was really struck by the fact, though, that the cost of servicing the federal debt has actually come down. Again, this is like the miracle of low interest rates. So when I look at um, the government's projections in terms of the revenue that it's lost uh, for the rest of this year, the emergency measures that they've put in place that we know are, are going to be temporary, um, that once that revenue comes back and once those emergency measures can be withdrawn, that already gets us a huge part of the way in terms of resolving the deficit. Now, that larger issue of how do we how do we serve the debt? Um, remember, governments are not like households, right? Um, we have to serve the debt. Um, we have to watch the ratio between our debt to GDP. But at this stage, we are not at the same level of crisis that we were in the 1990s. We're not? And the cost, we're really not. We're genuinely not. Like the debt to GDP ratio is expected to climb to maybe 50%. We were approaching 70 in the 90s, right? I guess, and I guess the other thing is we have to keep in mind that we're not alone in this, right? Like many oh, other countries 100%. are facing this. Uh, like every other country, basically, is facing this, right? And I know people heard um, that uh, one of the bond rating agencies or the credit rating agencies downgraded Canada's rating from AAA to AA+. Um, That is one. But, um, you know, there are very few countries in the world right now that are being able to maintain that AAA rating. There are other rating agencies out there. Let's wait and see what they do in terms of Canada's uh, ratings. But... um, we're actually, we're in a really unprecedented position, not just because it's both the, like the health, public health crisis, as well as the economic crisis that's hitting us. The nature of the economic crisis is both a supply and demand side crisis. We've never faced something like that before. And we're in a situation where every other country in the world is also having to take on enormous amounts of debt and deficit spending just to be able to cope with the same crises. And in a lot of ways, Canada actually looks comparatively better than those other countries. Dr. Robson, thanks for your analysis on this. Thank you. What we expect law enforcement to do today is quite different from what they were doing 45 years ago. Okay, so that's Premier John Horgan announcing a review of the Police Act, talking about changes that potentially need to be made. What does that mean? When was the last time we even updated the Police Act, and how could that impact you? To talk more about this, the Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. How old is the Police Act? Uh, It's 45 years old, Um, and so 
Um, as uh, one of my colleagues uh, in the legislature said, it was put in place before they were even born. Yeah, I was thinking about them with my age too. I was just a toddler. So why has it not been updated during all that time or has it? Um, well, it has been updated in the sense that from time to time it has been amended. Um, but it is, a, it is a significant piece of legislation. It's a very large piece of legislation um, and, and complex. And so it has, there have been attempts to bring it forward in the past, uh, but it has never quite made it to the top of the priority list. You know, government has, has, has hundreds of pieces of legislation, if not thousands. Um, and it's always been, okay, we can amend it. And the reality is it's time to give it a complete um, um, going through, bring it up to date, make it an act that, that meets the needs of the, uh, the 21st century, because so much has changed uh, in terms of not only do what we ask the police to do, but uh, technology, uh, issues around governance and oversight and training, all of those things, and, and it's time to, to, to really uh, uh, modernize it. Can you give us an idea of some of the things in the act that you think need to be modernized? Um, well, I know one of the issues that's often discussed, for example, is should mayors automatically be uh, chairs of, of police boards, for example, um, in, in terms of governance? Um, how do we deal with some of the issues around the changes in technology um, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, police are, are having to deal with and police boards are having to, to deal with? Um, issues around, um, you know, mental health, uh, yeah. And what we ask police to do um, are all the kinds of are, are kinds of things that, uh, that that we should be looking at. Okay, this sounds like a major undertaking, though. So, what is this process going to look like? Yeah, it is a it is a major undertaking. Uh, so, we've put together an all party committee. Uh, so, uh, members of the legislature from uh, all the parties represented in the house. It is also a large committee. It will have nine members because we fully expect there will be a lot of work, and so they'll be able to. To you know, have subcommittees that are able to bring things back to the committee. Um, there's a wealth of experience on that committee. Uh, two RCMP officers, uh, Indigenous representation, for example, um, men, women, you know, persons of color. It's they're going to be able to to really get into um, into the issue. They'll be able to call witnesses, hear testimony, um, have presentations. Um, they'll hold hearings. Um, so they and they've got the time necessary to uh, to do the work. Was it recent events then happening kind of all over the world and in here in BC that put this to the top of the list? I think it certainly um, created the opportunity um, to or helped create the opportunity. It's something that I know that uh, that within my ministry they have been wanting to do, and I know uh, in the previous government it's been like we've got to get on this. Uh, and, I, and I think it is fair to say that uh, uh, recent events have, have elevated interest uh, in this. And it's, you know what, it's a good time to do this. We're going to do it. Let's do it. Uh, and uh, so I think in an all-party committee, which gives MLAs uh, the opportunity to engage in some what I believe to be really productive uh, and really constructive uh, uh, work. I think people would be very happy to hear that we, we're going to approach the mental health aspect differently, right? We've heard too many stories of things going wrong when police do wellness checks. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the focus that we're seeing in recent years uh, on mental health, uh, it's been a priority for, for our government. Um, that, uh, you know, and, and, and when you talk to police, uh, that issue of uh, 
They're often, in many cases, the, the frontline mental health worker. And, you know, that's not what they're trained uh, to be. Um, and uh, so they're in a very challenging position. And so I think it's very timely that uh, this committee will have the ability to look at that intersection between policing and mental health and, and, and potential changes uh, that we should put in place uh, and the opportunity, um, you know, in terms of, of resources and, and doing things differently. What about oversight? This has also been, I think, a more recent development where I think mm-hmm. citizens demand more oversight of police departments. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, and oversight is a very important aspect, and there have been a number of changes in terms of oversight uh, over the uh, over the last number of years. So, for example, we we've got uh, you know a police complaints commissioner, uh, we've got the independent investigations office. Uh, there have been changes there, but then how does that all impact in terms of the overall police act? Uh, and that comes back to one of the questions: Should a mayor, for example, automatically chair share the police board? Um, there's some in, inherent conflicts there. Uh, that uh, that uh, many communities said, you know, we really need to to, to look at this. Uh, how do you strengthen uh, the role of a police board? Are there changes that need to be to be made there in that relationship between the police board and the uh, and the local council? So, what is the timeline for this? Uh, the timeline is the committee was struck yesterday, um, and they have until May 14th of next year to come back with a, a final report. Uh, we wanted to give enough time uh, for them to do the work, taking into account, you know, that we are in a, a bit of a, a challenging situation right now with, with COVID. Uh, and so, you know, traditionally, um, you would often be going out and doing face-to-face meetings, Uh, in communities. Uh, I expect uh, a lot of this work is going to be done uh, virtually uh, through technology. uh, And, uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's quite different. We've had some experience uh, with some other committees and and it's working well, but uh, we want to make sure that the the committee has the ability or has the time to do the job right uh, and to do the work that needs to be done. Can you get this done though, before the need to call an election at some point next year? Oh, I think so. I think so. I mean, an election doesn't have to be called until uh, October, uh, I think it's October 21st of, uh, of next year. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you ever heard of forensic nursing? Well, it's a growing field that combines healthcare, kind of, with law enforcement, or at least assisting law enforcement. So fascinating. When I first heard about this, I wanted to learn more about it. So joining us now is Tara Wilkie, BCIT instructor for the Forensic Health Sciences Program. Tara, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. I'm so curious about this. So what does it mean to be a forensic nurse? Well, forensic nursing is the healthcare response to crime, violence, and trauma. And as you mentioned, it bridges healthcare and law enforcement. Um, forensic nurses, they're registered nurses, and we come from all different healthcare backgrounds. And we have a special interest in social justice, uh, health equity, and human rights. And um, we receive additional education to provide care for people uh, who've experienced intentional interpersonal violence. So this could be sexual assault, uh, child abuse, dating violence, domestic violence, elder abuse, and human trafficking. And through our work, we work in partnership uh, with police, community service providers, uh, lawyers, social workers, and other um, health, social, and legal service providers. Interesting. Okay, so are are forensic nurses almost like collecting evidence? 
So our job as forensic nurses is to really provide our patients with options for care. Um, We do work in healthcare settings. We also work in other community settings like corrections or death investigation. Um, But my job primarily as a forensic nurse is within the healthcare setting. And um, within this work, we provide our patients with uh, the option for a medical exam, uh, which uh, could include um, documentation of injuries, medical care for injuries and illness, uh, prevention and treatment for sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy. Um, but we also have the ability to collect forensic samples. Um, and we give our patients the options um, whether or not they want to store this forensic sample uh, for up to one year while they decide kind of how they want to proceed with this. Yeah. Or uh, they do have the option to uh, report to police in which we would give these samples to police. And if this case is to go forward, then forensic nurse examiners can also testify as fact or expert witnesses in the courts. Interesting. Okay, so it, it's almost like um, this is the kind of work that nurses are doing before, but does it really kind of formalize the situation and recognize what a unique role this is? That nurses are often that first point of contact for victims of violence. Absolutely. Yeah, we play a very critical role. Uh, all nurses, all healthcare providers, really. Um, could be an initial point of contact with anybody who's experiencing violence. So it's really important that we kind of understand how violence intersects with um, all areas of healthcare. So is this a growing field, would you say? Is this a new thing? It's not a new thing um, globally. Um, It is a newer thing, I would say, to Canada. um, And we are actively growing, but it is a very fast and growing profession. Um, as we know, um, violence is, is here and uh, ever-changing and, and growing in its own entity. And so um, we have to also uh, keep up with those times as well. So what kind of extra training are we talking about? Like, is it, there's, obviously, I think it's probably psychology training, right? That you need to be able to talk to these victims as well? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, all forensic nurses are registered nurses. Like I said, they come Mm -hmm. from all different backgrounds, but then they do take additional training on top of that. That's really quite specific. So um, this training is specific to violence and multiple forms of violence included in that um, is, you know, we have uh, training on trauma-informed care, uh, trauma-informed practice, um, communications, and that type of thing with our patients as well. So, Does every kind of hospital have a forensic nurse? How does the staffing work? Not every hospital has a forensic nurse. Uh, It is dependent on the health region. Uh, We're very lucky here in uh, the province of of BC because we do have uh, forensic nurses within several health regions. Um, And typically they are stationed uh, and not uh, mobile in that We have very specific uh, ways of conducting our care. So we do have um, on-site locations within emergency departments um, and our patients would come to us because we are using specialized equipment. Uh, We have specialized cleaning procedures, uh, storage of our evidence to maintain chain of custody and such. So um, that's typically how most programs operate. Well, thanks very much for explaining it to us this morning. No problem. 
Appreciate your time. That's Tara Wilkie, a BCIT instructor for their Forensic Health Sciences program, explaining what's called forensic nursing. And this is, you know, if you've ever watched a police TV show, and I've watched many, you can see how this would be a critical link between someone who has been a victim of violence, they arrive in the hospital, the way they are spoken to, the way they are treated, the way evidence is collected, all of that. And this kind of role recognizes that. I think it's fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about Vancouver City Council here for a moment, because once again this week, they planned on dealing with some stuff and then it never got done. Motions that got delayed by Vancouver City Council. And that has been a criticism that we have heard more and more of in recent months. Well, one councillor thinks that it's because too many other councillors are wasting time. We wanted to hear more about this. Christine Boyle joins us now, the One City Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me on again, Simi. So what happened here? So there were some important issues that were up for discussion, right? Yeah, absolutely. So council had another uh, full and important agenda on Tuesday, um, and council members uh, ran out the clock without a plan in place. We knew we had a hard stop at 5.30, and the clock ran out amidst sort of procedural points of order, uh, which meant that all of the business on our agenda gets delayed two weeks um, until the next meeting. And uh, for me, one of the most critical and and urgent issues on our agenda was a motion to ban street checks, which is something that Black and Indigenous residents have been telling us for years disproportionately affects uh, their communities. So I think it's time to ban them without stalling or delaying, and I was uh, frustrated to see as you said, not for the first time, um, council run out of time without a plan and uh, and delay the work that we were elected to do. And you you said they ran out the clock. So what happens there? What? How does that happen? Like explain that situation to me. Um, so in this case, it was over a number of items. Um, you know, it's hard to say. It felt intentional is what I'm going to say. I mean, over a number of items on the agenda, um, everything took longer than uh, than predicted and than it probably needed to because of a lot of questions and speeches, but also um, a lot of procedural points of order and points of privilege uh, that, you know, that I think we could have avoided um, and, uh, and cause us delays and, um, and, mean that members of the public are waiting a long time for the items that they are most interested in. You said it felt intentional. Why do you think that is? Because it's not the first time uh, that it's happened. Um, and, you know, because we all know the the amount of time that we have, um, I think you'd hear from uh, anyone who watches or has listened to council meetings uh, that we uh, have been taking longer than needed on lots of items, yes. um, and uh, and it's frustrating. So the more it continues, the more it feels like um, we should know better. Uh, you know, and it's not all council, um, but we should know better. And uh, and that's why I am talking about it more now because uh, I'm increasingly frustrated by. By witnessing it, has this been brought up at council? Have you talked about this with other councillors? You know, it's certainly something I talk about with other councillors, trying to figure out um, how best to move forward. Uh, as I said, it's sort of 
it's not equally distributed. And so I do think it's the responsibility of, um, of counselors to, uh, to do better themselves and have more self-awareness about the amount of time that they're taking up and what that means for the public and for uh, getting the work done. What is the mayor's role in all of this? Like, is, is there not supposed to be a process for moving things along here? So the mayor chairs council meetings. Um, we have uh, two other chairs for committee meetings. Um, th- the mayor is one vote in most of these processes. So I, I do think it's up to all of us um, and up to party caucuses uh, as well to to figure it out amongst uh, their own folks. So you say party caucuses, that's because there's numerous parties that are now represented on council, unlike what we saw kind of in the last 10 or 15 years. Is that preventing things, do you think, from moving forward? Everybody wanting to get their two cents in? Um, I don't think that, uh, that that's the problem. This is a minority council. Um, it's the first time that we've had a minority council in Vancouver since the 1980s. So that means that there's no ruling party. It means that we really debate and discuss a lot of issues out in public. There aren't decisions made before we go into meetings. I think there's lots of good that comes from that. Um, and it also means there's no, there's no government in opposition. It means that it's all of our responsibility uh, to govern the city well uh, and to not play political games that stall and delay uh, and uh, and keep us from getting the work done. Have you talked to the councillors who you feel are potentially playing political games? Um, I, I have had lots of conversations. Um, you know, just to be um, frank about it, uh, the, the largest amount of points of order are coming from Councillor DiGenova, um, and I'd hope to see the NPA caucus have that discussion together. Um, certainly, that was why we ran out of time this week. Um, I'm not sure what I can do anymore on that front. Um, I think it's about some public accountability and some personal accountability to uh, to doing better and, and not delaying our work. Now, are you hearing criticisms from the public? Because I know I've been hearing criticisms from the public on Vancouver City Council not getting anything done. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's why... Uh, I am talking about it. Um, my style is collaborative. I, I'm the only member of one city elected, and um, I I think people would tell you that I am able to work with others and get things done. It's certainly not my style to be pointing fingers, um, but I do think uh, that this has gotten to a point where something needs to be done, and I am hearing a lot of criticism and concern from the public uh, about our inability to to govern well um, and and timely. Do you think the city could have perhaps responded differently in the pandemic situation if it did work better or more efficiently? I actually uh, think that the city responded quite well uh, on a number of issues in the pandemic, and I'll give the mayor credit for a lot of leadership on that front, particularly um, in how uh, quickly we responded to ensure that protections were in place for some of our most vulnerable residents. I think the work um, from staff uh, and the mayor on expediating patios and other uh, recovery efforts have been really good. Um, 
So that has been actually a kind of a breath of fresh air, I think, in getting work done. Um, But the larger issue we've seen continue, which is, you know, uh, certain certain council members and certain uh, NPA councillors continuing to use excessive points of order and points of privilege and... um, Uh, and slow the work. So what would be your message then to your fellow councillors this morning? Uh, My my message is that that it's up to all of us to uh, ensure good governance, to avoid political games. I think it means um, some behavioural changes. You know, this council has looked at the kind of procedural stuff, how we can tweak the way that we do work to make it smoother, um, but the larger challenge is behavioral. Like I said, it, it hasn't been everyone, um, but we need some more accountability so that we uh, can really get the work done smoothly. And um, and I hope councillors will step up on that front and, and take some responsibility. We will see. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's Christine Boyle. She represents one city, a Vancouver City Councillor there. Concerned, and listen, I've had a lot of emails about this over the last month or so, that Vancouver City Council is essentially not getting enough done. They're not being efficient enough. They had two motions this week, important ones, about street checks, about supporting community-led initiatives that got put off, delayed by two weeks because the council meeting ran out of time. This is Mornings with Simi. So much has changed uh, in terms of not only do what we ask the police to do, but uh, technology, uh, issues around governance and oversight and training, all of those things. And, and it's time to, to, to really uh, uh, modernize it. And that is why an all-party committee of nine MLAs is going to take a look at modernizing the BC Police Act for the first time in 45 years. That was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth on with us earlier to talk about that. So what do we need to change? What needs to stay? We thought, let's get some analysis of this. Joining us now is Rob Gordon, SFU criminology professor. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, Simi. So what did you think of that news? You think, okay, about time? Uh, oh, yeah, long, long overdue. Um and it's a pity that a couple of tragedies had to uh, stimulate it. I, I'm, yeah, I think it's sad when that happens. Um, one of the things I've noticed about governance around policing issues is there's very little proactive um, reform that takes place. It's nearly always reactive. Uh, that's not always the best place to start from. But, you know, it's, it's underway. Uh, so um, I, I'm fairly optimistic that some uh, good developments will come from this. And what do you think should be high on that priority list? Well, I, I was a little alarmed by a couple of things. Um, one, that uh, there seemed to be some ambivalence about whether or not the RCMP should be included uh, in this review. Um, now, what has to be understood is that the RCMP is by far the largest uh, policing entity within British Columbia by virtue of contracts. So the RCMP uh, are the provincial police service for, um, for BC. Um, and also, of course, they're, um, they serve as the municipal police uh, services for a number of municipalities, the, the loudest one being <laughs> Surrey. Um, and in fact, they're over-policing in BC, given that it's a federal police force. 
So, I, I mean, I, they, they, we shouldn't be looking necessarily at what they're doing um, as a federal police service. Um, there are a number of federal business lines that they uh, need, need to be doing, but mm. uh, none of those really touch upon the uh, flashpoints that seem to have emerged over the last little while in terms of day-to-day policing. Right. Um, but they're certainly out there and in places like, for example, Kelowna, Uh, where there's just been a major mental health uh, conflict around police activity. And, uh, um, you know, to just exclude them, I think, would be a terrible mistake and would make the whole thing a joke. Um, I'm sure they realize that, and it may just simply have been there's not been thought through at this point. Right. So we did talk about mental health. That's obviously pretty high on the list, right, dealing with that. What about police oversight? Uh, well, um, keep going. I mean, if you look at the first uh, term of reference, it's full of interesting stuff that has to do really with the organization and management of police in British Columbia. Um, and then the other bits and pieces have been tagged on. Um, and they're important, but uh, they're, they're relatively, uh, relatively easy to solve. Um, once you start drilling down into those problems. So, for example, the mental health one, there's already been a large number of uh, comments made about that and suggestions made about having uh, teams going um, to uh, to mental health calls. Uh, and I'm all for that. Uh, don't send a police officer fully armed um, on his or her own uh, to one of those calls. So that, that's an important thing to look at, but it's, it's relatively important relatively small in comparison with a major overhaul of policing in the province. And that's what's needed. Um, everything else comes along, follows along behind that. So that, that uh, looking at the structure and organization and management of police in the province yeah. um, is the number one priority. Let it be that way and let's have a good hard look at it. So quickly then, Rob, is one year enough time? This report has to come back in May of next year. Yeah, it's going to be, there'll be a hard-pressed um, because there's going to have to be some public consult on this. But uh, good luck with it, and I'll most certainly be watching. I'm sure you will be. Rob, thank you. Welcome to me. That's Rob Gordon, SFU criminology professor, talking about the huge undertaking of modernizing and updating the BC Police Act. A nine-party MLA, all-party, I should say, committee of MLAs will be doing this over the next year with the final report to come back and be submitted uh, in May of next year. Is that enough time when you consider all the things Rob just touched on, scratch the surface of things that need to be dealt with? What would you put on that list? This is Mornings with Simi. Pressure is intensifying for parents planning on returning to work in the fall who will have to find alternative arrangements for their kids if school isn't full-time. Yeah, not exactly a relaxing summer vacation for parents out there who are worried about what school is going to look like in September. That's our Global News Victoria reporter Richard Zussman talking about that. Well, we thought let's get some perspective on this. Joining us now is BC Liberal MLA Dan Davies. Actually used to be a full-time teacher as well. And now he's the MLA for Peace River North. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. Happy to be here. I'm sure you're hearing a lot from parents about this, right? They are stressed out. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of colleagues uh, that are teachers as well. And I've and, uh, been hearing lots from teachers, administrators, parents. Um, you know, just what is going to happen this fall? What is it going to look like? What can they start to plan for? And, uh, 
you can imagine going into, you know, uh, an already extremely modified summer holiday or summer vacation plan, um, having that extra level of stress looming over you, not certain what it's going to look like. Yeah, we have definitely received lots of phone calls and uh, looking looking forward to some sort of a plan yeah. going forward. What would you tell uh, Rob Fleming, the education minister, about this? Like, what would be your recommendations for how to deal with this? Well, we, this week, actually, we uh, uh, wrote a letter to the minister uh, on Monday asking, because uh, initially the, the ministry's office came out with a August 20th uh, date to deliver a plan, which we said was completely inappropriate. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking then only a, a week or so ahead of school starting up to get a plan. That's just not appropriate. So we wrote a letter to the minister saying we need some sort of uh, a plan prior to uh, to the first week of August. Uh, we asked some questions in uh, uh, the House yesterday uh, during question period. I know that uh, media had also asked them. We did finally get a commitment from the minister that he would have a plan out in three weeks. So we we are happy uh, to hear that. Uh, we will be looking forward to uh, to seeing what's in that plan. And at the end of the day, I mean, this is all to give parents and children some certainty as they move forward. They can start making a plan. We're talking big changes. We, uh, their daycare needs to be planned. People got to look at their work schedules and, and what are those going to look like in the fall. Uh, alternate schools, dropping kids off. So there's a lot of stuff that has to be planned for that they may not have had to plan for in a normal school year. So we'll see what this plan looks like here in a few weeks yeah. and uh, hope for the best. Do you think the system is capable of doing all of those different things that you just talked about? I think it is. We, we've seen some pretty uh, uh, incredible things happen in this province uh, around COVID-19. People have really stepped up to the plate. Uh, teachers have stepped up to the plate as well. Uh, we saw June as the trial run. Uh, I know the the minister and the premier both said that they would be look, looking at the uh, successes and how things went in June. Uh, this was why it was kind of a surprise to us that uh, they weren't going to come up with a plan until August. I was like, well, you've already had a, a, a trial run in June. You've had since March really to be thinking, you know, things are, you know, as soon as they suspended the schools after spring break, uh, a plan should have been started to be put in place for September, knowing full well that it's going to look different. So, uh, again, we're yeah. just really uh, looking forward to seeing this plan, and parents are too. How do you think the trial run went, right? Everybody says that was like practice for September, just you know, seeing how this would go. How do you think that went for people? Well, again, hearing from uh, many, many parents and uh, uh, teachers and, and such, I, I think there were successes, obviously, uh, you know, uh, Children that had diverse learning needs, uh, you know, most importantly, did get into classes and had some of those supports around them. Um, you know, we only had about, uh, on average across the province, around that 30% mark that actually did attend the in-classroom. But it really stirred up, uh, you know, the family dynamics. Uh, you've gone from a child, you know, being in school five days a week to the kids that did return to school being in school one or two days a week, depending if they were in the uh, upper high school, uh, the high schools or, or in the elementary schools. So, I mean, the absolute turmoil that it caused, you know, it, yeah. it, it can't be underplayed. I mean, it, it put some significant stresses on uh, on families. Um, you know, I, I would love to see schools return back to full time, but, uh, you know, that's uh, the reality is we don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, this is, you know, we are still in this pandemic and there is still some uncertainty. Yeah. But like I say, I mean, you know, uh, parents have already been extremely flexible and understanding throughout this. 
I think the the right thing to do is get a plan out. There will be understanding that there will still need to be some flexibility, and that, uh, like I said, I don't think students to be asking to get this plan. I don't think so either, but we'll be talking to you, I'm sure, in the next couple of weeks. Dan, thank you. Uh, absolutely.